Imagine you are eager to attend your 30-year college reunion, excited to catch up with your mates. You have high hopes. But what if catching up is not what you expected? Instead of hearing about all the joy of family life and all the great career successes, you begin to sense a pattern that redirect the conversations to go somewhere else. And instead of hearing about how your friends change the world and how much they love their marriages and their children, their narrative begins to sound something like this. My 13-year-old, she slashed her wrists. My mom's an alcoholic. Me, I'm being treated for depression. Oh, and by the way, my boss, yeah, he's a crook. What everyone that night said in one way or another was the same thing. My life has been disrupted. My dream shattered, my confidence punctured. There's a gap between the upwardly mobile life I was sold and the unstable, utterly fluid life I'm forced to contend with. The life I'm living is not the life I expected. Sadly, I'm living my life out of order. It is in a constant state of chaos. But what if trying to make sense of the world you read a book and you suddenly have a shift in mindset that helps you to heal, to soothe the pain, and to find a remedy where otherwise all you felt was hopelessness. In other words, what can we learn from the science of chaos to help heal ourselves and our loved ones? And the best part? The remedy is a model that causes us to think differently. And it start with, starts with the importance of understanding our family's narrative to understand our own. And it boils down to six words, agency, belonging, cause, me, we, thee. In other words, what we're talking about is that the shape of our lives are not linear as we were led to believe. What we learn from the science of, science of chaos helps us to draw the shape of our lives and represent how we see ourselves. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. Today's guest through a series of life-altering events, puts all of this perspective into perspective in a wonderful book that I loved, and it's called Life in the Transitions, Mastering the Art at Any Change. What an honor it is to host Bruce. He is the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, an inspiration for the drama Council of Dads, which was aired on NBC last year. His two TED Talks have been viewed more than two million times. And this book, Life in the Transitions, described his journey across America, collecting hundreds of life stories, exploring how we navigate life's growing number of transitions to live with more meaning, purpose, and joy. Bruce, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Thank you, Chuck. It's lovely to be with you. And I'm, I'm touched by that uh, introduction, not least of which because that scenario that you imagined actually happened to me. Indeed, it did. In fact, I thought about it as I read the book, and, and I, I immediately, that was in the very early part. It was in the, I think maybe the second or third page. But what it really, in spite of the fact that there was so much in the book, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Even though that wasn't what you expected, did that give birth to the idea of writing life is in the transitions? The short answer is yes. Um, the long answer is that it had been coming for a long time. So I think that what happened to me uh, is several fold. So first of all, as you said, like I had been living a life that 
through the lens of the conversation we're about to have, I now realize was linear. Right? I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, I left there. I went to Yale. I left there. I went to Japan. Uh, I started writing letters home on crinkly airmail paper because there was no internet back then. And um, when I got back to Georgia six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? And it turned out that my <laughs> grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around and they went sort of viral in an old fashioned sense of the word. And so I thought I should write a book about this. So it doesn't happen this way, but I got a book contract uh, at 24. In my 20s, I wrote books about Japan and England, country music. In my 30s, I went back and forth uh, to the Middle East and writing books about religion and the kind of religious conflicts we were in in the wake of 9-11. Uh, and this was the linear life, right? Like I found out what I wanted to do. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married. I had children. But then in my 40s, as you alluded to, I was just upended by life. First, I got the cancer that you alluded to with Council of Dads, and I was 43. I mean, this was so nonlinear. I had an adult onset pediatric cancer. Right. Um, then I had financial troubles in the, the, the Great Recession. Uh, and then my dad, who has Parkinson's, tried to take his own life Indeed. six times in 12 weeks. And I think that for me, like for many people, my instinct was not to tell this story. But when I, because I felt alone and that I was different and maybe a bit of shame, uh, but when I did tell other people, everybody had a similar story. And what happened at that 30th reunion of mine is I mentioned this because I was moderating a panel of prominent classmates and, and I had sort of an upsetting event earlier that morning. And I had all these resumes of all these people, all these people who had climbed to the top, I'm thinking of the name <laughs> of, of your work. Appreciate that. <laughs> you know, and then I just ripped, literally ripped up the resumes in a room full of 250 people and said, I don't want to hear about your success. Right. I want to hear about your struggles. And that night, it took me two hours to walk from the bar to the barbecue that they had on the other side, because person after person came up and had the stories that you articulated at the outset of this conversation. And it was that phrase that you mentioned, like I'm living life out of order. Like there was this thing, Chuck, that we had, we had, we had linear expectations, but nonlinear lives. And right. it was clear that that gap between our expectations and our lives was the source of a lot of this anxiety. And so, yes, I called my wife and I said, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. And I've got to figure out how to help. What I really appreciated though, as you drew me into the book so quickly, and I think for all of us, we get out of college, we have an expectation of what we think life is. But immediately you drew me into the story and I began to see myself, our families into that. And you talked about the shape of our lives and it was a very powerful metaphor. But I would like, before we go further on, there was a wonderful thing that you narrated about and it was very much called the wolf in the fairy tale. Mm. And I think all of us, as we recognize, what does that story ahead of us look like? Who knows when the wolf is appear, appears? Can you describe that? Because I think that was such, such a foundation of what we're about to discuss when we talk about the story of our lives. So stop for a second, everybody listening to this conversation, right? And, and think about the story that's going on in the back of your head, right? That's the story of where you came from and who you are, what's important to you, what you do. Imagine if you got a call right now that a loved one was in the hospital and you had to race to the hospital. You know, you would be thinking about how you met that person and what they mean to you and what your life might be like if something happens to them. That story is the story of your life. 
And we've learned in the last generation that that story is not part of you. That story is you in a fundamental way. Like life is the story that you tell yourself. But what we have in our minds, Chuck, is essentially a script of how we think that that story is going to go. And these are the kind of the earliest stories, whether it's a superhero story uh, or a fairy tale, because fairy tales are often the, the earliest stories that we hear. And when we, we, that's the story that we want, right? That's the story of we're the hero and there's a happy ending. But that's not what makes it a fairy tale. What makes it a fairy tale is what happens between the when you meet the hero and the happy ending, which is that there's a wood, right? And you have to go into the woods and you've got to go through the woods. And what happens when you go into the woods or through the woods? You encounter a wolf. Indeed. And, and that wolf, it may be a wolf or an ogre or a dragon. It may be a downsizing or a death or a tornado or yes, a pandemic. And our instinct is that we want to turn away from the wolf and like pretend that the wolf doesn't happen. But you can't do that. Like what makes it a fairy tale is that the hero has to get through or around or under or over or whatever it is in some way get around the wolf to what happens on the other end. Yeah. And the Italians have a wonderful expression of this, which is lupus and fabula. And lupus and fabula means the wolf in the fairy tale. And it means just when everything is going well, along comes a wolf. And so what I've learned is that, like that's an incredibly description of what our lives are, but you can't shield your eyes when the wolf starts because that's when the heroes are made. And if there's one thing I've learned in talking to hundreds of people about their life stories is that we all want and need to be the hero of our own story. And, and I, I loved the way you described the narrative, but what I couldn't get out of my head was the phone call that from your own description that changed your life about mm. your father. And, and, and it was this, what? Like dad's trying to kill himself. And, you, and it caused you to think differently. And this is where I want our listeners to pick up, that sometimes the wolf actually comes in the form of a phone call. And it causes you not to think about the event itself, oh my God, my father's trying to kill himself, but about the implications for what do we do with this as it relates to interviewing your father. And we'll get to that in just a second. Can you describe the circumstance of now this wolf appeared as the phone rang and how that shifted your mindset to this seems to me what ultimately led to, if I can figure out what happened here, maybe I can help others figure out what they're going to do when that wolf appears. So I'm a storyteller. You know, I grew up in the South, uh, in the American South, five generations of Jews in the South. So that's basically like two storytelling traditions that have collided in me in a lifetime of stories. I spent a bulk of my life spending time in the ancient world talking about the power of stories to shape uh, who you are and who we are. Uh, I had spent the years before this phone call writing about families. For a decade, I wrote a column in the New York Times about contemporary families. And the most interesting idea that I heard during this time was from two scholars at Emory, Marshall Duke and Robin Fivish, um, who, who found that children who know more about their family history uh, it's the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. They created this, uh, uh, this thing that I called in the New York Times a do-you-know scale. Like, do you know where your grandparent was born? Do you know an aunt or an uncle who had a problem that they overcame, like cancer? Or you know, do you know what happened when your parents met? And the children who, who could answer more of these questions, who knew more of their family history, it was 
a, a predictor, a skill building exercise that allowed them to uh, navigate whatever bumps in the road that they have. And I uh, encountered this idea. I wrote about it in the New York Times. It was a crazy viral piece uh, called The Stories That Bind Us. And this was the backbone of my book, The Secrets of Happy Families. And so this all had happened um, in the months leading up to when I get this call from my mother that my father who has Parkinson's, a man who was never depressed a minute in his life, suddenly has sort of lost control of his brain and he's trying to take his own life. And this is a crisis by any measure. We're dealing with medical matters. We're dealing with who's going to run the family business, which my my older brother takes over. But I'm the story guy and I'm the meaning guy. And so kind of on a whim, I have this idea like, oh, well, what if I go back to this? Like, what if I have my father begin to talk about his family history? So on a Monday morning, I send him an email. What are the toys that you played with as a child? And like he can't even move his fingers at this point. He's basically dictating the answer to Siri and hunting and pecking on an iPad. But he answers it. It's about a page. And I'm like, okay, this worked. I'll send him another one. Like, tell me about the house you grew up in. And this goes on and has now been going on for seven years uh, until my father, who never wrote anything longer than a memo in his life, backs into writing an autobiography. And what it does for me is it plunges me into this world of narrative identity, right? There turns out to be a whole field of narrative gerontology, uh, there narrative adolescence, right? Narrative medicine. And this is all part of this movement I was alluding to earlier that thinking about our story is fundamental to who we are because essentially what these events are, I came ultimately, as you know, to call them life quakes, which is not a term I set out for. I just set out to talk to people about their lives. And what I found were disruptors and life quakes and life transitions and all the stuff we're about to talk about, but I didn't go in looking for that. But what I, the fundamental idea that I had, which is what's resonating so powerfully now with this book, is that these life quakes, these events, these tornadoes, these deaths, these pandemics, these, uh, you know, whatever, whatever else, disloyalties, or, you know, being laid off from our jobs, or losing our legs, or having a diagnosis, or whatever it might be, these are narrative events, they're sort of breaches in the normal, like, we're telling the story of our lives, and then a book along comes a divorce, right, along comes a problem. So this is a narrative event, and therefore it requires, on a kind of fundamental level, a narrative solution. You have to tell a new story about who you are that incorporates the chapter that says, I lost my job, or I started a new venture, or I moved to a new place, or I lost a loved one. So these are narrative events, and therefore the way to think about them is as a storytelling act that we have to do, and that we are called upon to do, and it turns out, we're called upon to do it much more frequently in the course of our lives than most people think, imagine, or frankly, are prepared for. Well, there's an old adage, and maybe this goes back to the dawn of time where children should be encouraged to interview their parents, notwithstanding any phone call or anything that come, but the best way to understand ourselves is often to ask them the questions that we never thought to ask ourselves. Was that part of, of but before the life quakes and all of these, were you always in the back of your mind thinking, is there something I can learn from my mom and dad that I otherwise didn't? The short answer is no, actually. Yeah, I case. wonder, like, yeah. Like I had young children at that time. And so right. yes, they had done those experiences. This was not, um, 
me interviewing them to learn right. something about me, right? This was not children interviewing grandparents as valuable as I think that that is for the children to understand something about themselves, right? This was asking my dad to interview himself, right? <laughs> right. So this is asking in a sense, what I'm asking people to do is when you hit your own narrative disruption, reflect on your own story because that's the way to find meaning. To make meaning in your lives is to think of your life as a story and to reflect in times of difficulty. Like we know, and you talk about children, right? So uh, we know, like I have children now, they're in high school. That means that they have performative exercises, whether that's a test or my kids are dancers, so a dance or if you're an athlete. And the thing to do if you have a child who might be in this situation, rather than say, I believe in you or you'll do good or break a leg or you know knock it out of the park or whatever you might say, that's actually not the most constructive thing to say to a child about to do some sort of performative exercise. The best thing to say is remember when you did it before like you've done it, you've gotten through this. Like that's the reason that that children who know more about their family history do better. It's because they know somebody else. Oh, Aunt Susie, uh, she had breast cancer and she overcame it. Or, right. you know, your grandfather, he moved to this country. He was the first in his family to go to college. He became the vice president of the bank, but then his house burned down. Because, and, and I will tell you, Chuck, I have spoken about this in front of hundreds of corporate groups and business groups and community service groups. And when I tell this story, people nod like, oh yeah, we do that in my family. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. We talk about family history all the time. And then I actually point out that that frankly isn't true. That we live in this culture now, we want to protect our children from things that go wrong. We don't want them to know that we suffer. And I don't know if you remember if you if you're if you're a parent, but when the kids are really young, children, and I, I'm with you all the way on this. Right. And so, like, remember when the kids are young, like you, you want everybody to Purell and to use hand sanitizer to not corrupt the kids. And now we know actually those <laughs> germs help the children in kind of an odd way to become more prepared for the pathogens and germs that they're going to get in their lives. It's the same way. We're protecting our children too much. And so speaking to our kids in a kind of age appropriate way that we're having struggles and so are the other members of their family gives them confidence. So I think from my dad and into the basis of the idea of narrative gerontology is that if you, as you get older, if you reflect on this story, it will help you to get through it. And that's where we are now. Like, and so what this book, what, you know, now this book has been out a few months as you and I are having this conversation, the, the number one reaction that people have had has been, whew, I mean, that's a technical term, but like, whew, I'm not, I, I, like, I'm not, a, I'm not alone. Like I'm going through this. I mean, let's remember what happened. Like I walked around. So what did I do? I went out, I gathered hundreds of life stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states, people who lost homes, lost limbs, changed careers, changed religions, got sober, got out of bad marriages. I then spent a year coding these, like combing through these transcripts, looking for patterns that could help all of us in times of change. And I wandered around my office here in Brooklyn where I'm talking to you today saying, Chuck, why aren't we talking about transitions? Like, this is a huge part of our lives. Like, we need to be talking about this. Everybody needs these skills. Everybody needs to understand their lives or stories. Why has there not been a major book on life transitions in 40 years? And then, lo and behold, I could spend the rest of my life trying to figure this out. 
The book arrives in the middle of a pandemic when the entire planet is going through a transition <laughs> uh, at the same time. So Better it turns to be out lucky to be like the book at the right time. Right. Yeah, indeed. You know, as I th for, first, Bruce, I want to thank you for something. As an author, when you write a book, what you have shown, and maybe it's a societal shift that our vulnerability now is not seen as something that, ca that, that causes people to perceive that we're weak. In fact, to the contrary, you had a major body of work prior to the release of this book, in particular in your first TED Talk, you talked about the rarity of your disease and, and the cure was, I think only two people have ever had whatever, I forget what the statistic was. But you put it all out there in the beginning of the book that I think leads all of us, you led by example, for all of us to come to grips with this thing in ourselves, and then being able to see that in, in our parents and in our families, and that if we get those narratives, it improves our mindset and our well-being. So if anyone else hasn't thanked you for that, from one father to another, thank you for putting your life story out and all the vulnerability that came with it, because I think it, it, it was, it's your strength. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And um, I, I did this interview on like the day the book came out with NPR and, and yeah. the woman, she said to me like, why'd you put all your stuff in here, right? And this is someone I know. And, and I was like, in part because I'm asking other people to share their stuff. Um, and in part, because yes, I am trying to lead by example, I looked 225 people in the eye and I said, like, what's the biggest emotion that you struggled with in your time of transition, right? In your life quake. Yeah. The number one uh, most common answer was fear. Right. I'm afraid. Like, what am I going to do without a job? What am I going to do without this loved one? How am I going to live without my legs? You know, I was on crutches for two years. I had, as you said, a nine inch osteo sarcoma in my left femur and 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 the the, the question uh, that you asked yes only I, I had a 17 hour surgery where doctors took out my femur replaced it with titanium took my fibula from my calf and relocated it to my thigh where it now lives and took out half my quadricep a surgery so rare only two people before me um, had ever survived it and um so uh fear like how am i going to get through this the second most common emotion sadness like I missed that person, or I liked having a job, right? Or I uh, liked having comfort when I uh, drank a bottle of vodka after work every day. Um, and that leads to the third, and this was a little bit of a surprise to me, it was shame. Like I'm ashamed that I have a child with an eating, uh, an eating disorder, right? I'm ashamed what I did when I was addicted. I'm ashamed that I have to ask for help. I'm ashamed that I don't live up to my expectations of myself or my spouse or my parents' expectation of me. And so you know, what I've realized is that there are these stages that we go through when we go through transitions I call them the long goodbye, the messy middle and the new beginning. And, and for a hundred years of thinking about transitions, people were told you had to do them in order. Like first you have to say goodbye to the old life and then you have to go into the wilderness and, and this messy middle and then you have a new beginning. That turns out to be bunk. And the reason is, is because everybody's good at parts of it. Like some people are good at unveiling the new self and announcing the new company but they haven't mourned the job that they lost, right? Or some people are very good at the long goodbye and, and accepting that it's emotional, but when they get into the messy middle and it's dragging on and they're dabbling in new things and experimenting and shedding old ways, they're not good at that. So, you know, kind of one of the things that I found that I tell people is if you're in a life transition and 
you're in a life transition because we spend half our lives in transition. Um, find the part that you're good at, start there, but don't forget that there are parts that you're not good at and you're gonna wanna go through them. And so if for a lot of people it is confronting the emotion. And I mean, if you think about when the pandemic first hit, like we all thought we were gonna go back, remember? Well, we'll sit inside for a month and then we'll go back. Three weeks tops. Oh my gosh, six <laughs> weeks and it'll be back to normal. Life will be, we'll be back. Well, uh -huh. <laughs> I see this actually as a crisis of the long goodbye, like that we, we didn't say goodbye to the old life. And then it's been six months or a year or however long it's been. And now we know we're not going back. Like we're going to go to someplace new. <laughs> Can we find good in it as well as pain? Yes, but we have to mourn the past or we're not going to be able to embrace the opportunities that come with this new normal, whatever it's going to look like and whatever we choose to make of it. Yeah, I, I want to shape shift this, Bruce. I, if we had 10 hours, I think you and I could fill it, but we don't. So there is part of this as I was reading the book, and it was really hitting on so many different cylinders. And then it came to what seemed to be the beginning of the prescriptive mindset. That's the way I thought about it. Mm. And you talked about that you are an A, B, and a C. Your wife is a C, A, B. I'm an ABC. What I'm talking about here was what Bruce described in the book as we were trying to make sense of this. First, the metaphor of the shape of our lives. I want to set that aside. I don't want to get into there right now. But you talked about so many of us, whatever we are looking for, it chances are it boils down to A, agency, B, a sense of belonging, and C, a sense of a cause. And that each of us, they're not equally divided, and they may be different for each of us. And you tied them, which I love. Now I thought about this differently. I said, damn, this is really interesting in my own mindset, that all of us think about our stories in the sense of me, the agency, we, the sense of belonging, and the the cause. Are we on this planet to promote a cause? Help our listeners understand how you came to that paradigm and how you use that as the road to what I saw as being prescriptive and healing. First of all, I think you're exactly right. I think that a lot of what I was trying to do was understand the world we're in now and the chaos and how it's affecting us and then move to how I can help people manage it. And you're right that this was a kind of a, um, a an inflection point or a pivot in that process. I think the best way to understand this is to go back a, a century ago, okay? At the beginning of the 20th century, most of us, most of our relatives, most people alive, you had to live where your parents wanted you to live, do what your parents wanted you to do, believe what your parents wanted you to believe, love who your parents wanted you to love. Um, and all of these things were forced on us. Like our sources of meaning and identity were imposed on us. Fast forward a century later to today, and that's no longer true. We no longer have to live where our parents want to live, do what they want us to do, believe what they want us to believe, vote the way they want us to vote, love who they want us to love. We can do all of that and make all of those choices ourselves. And that is an incredible opportunity, particularly for people who have um, non-traditional viewpoints, right? Who want to love non-traditional people or believe things that were somewhat different from their parents or have jobs that were not um, uh, what their parents mapped out for them. That is an incredible opportunity, but it comes with a huge 
burden and a huge cost, which is that we are overwhelmed. We have too many choices, right? We get writer's block writing the story of our lives. And so what I, how do we manage that? It turns out that we have three levers and that's what I came to call. And it was a huge process of listening to these conversations and coding them to realize that we have these ABCs of meaning. So the A is agency. That's usually what we do, what we make, what we build, what we create. For many of us, it's our work. The B is belonging. That's our relationships. That's who we love. That's our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-religionists, those where we share, you know, nonprofits or political movements with. And the C is a cause, a calling, a purpose, something higher than ourselves. And so Yes, everybody has all three of these um, in them. So as you said, I'm an ABC, I'm a writer. So I, I create, I build, I make things. I'm belonging, I'm very involved family member. I'm a super involved dad. Cause, less important to me. My wife, uh, Linda Rotenberg is her name and she started and runs an organization that supports entrepreneurs in 50 countries around the world. She's like a rock star founder. Cause, she gives to these uh, entrepreneurs all day, every day. And then she's very agentic, right? She's a co-founder and she's a leader and she's a CEO. Belonging, like, you know, she tolerates the rest of us. So, <laughs> Comes. Um, so she's a, I'm an ABC, she's a CAB. Everybody can, you know, kind of play this game at home. Yeah, I appreciate what, you sharing that. <laughs> you know, what's, what's your order? But here's what I found, right? So what we're talking about in this larger conversation, we're talking about this larger conversation is, sorry, I was going to change directions. No but worries. What we, what we were talking about in this larger conversation is what happens to us when we had life breaks, right? Three to five times in our lives, we have one of these life breaks. And this leads to a life transition. They take, you know, three, four, five years. So you do the math, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we spend in transition. And often what happens, what's a transition? It's a breach in the normal. When we have to rethink and recalibrate who we are, what happens is people shape shift. That was the, the inside joke the you made earlier, right? <laughs> so, so maybe you've been working very hard and you have a life quake and you say, I want to spend more time with your, with my family. Maybe you're a caretaker. You've been caring for a young child or an aging parent and you burn out and you say, I want to do something for myself. So you go from B to A, right? Or maybe, you know, you've been giving, you've been, you're, you're a giver, right? You volunteer, right? You're running a nonprofit and you just burn out and you say, you know what? I want to write my memoir or I want to start I want to start that bakery or that Airbnb that I've been dreaming about. So people tend to shape shift. And that's, again, a kind of what's one of the larger messages of what we're talking about is that these times of life that come at us at all times when we least expect them, the idea that this, these just happen to, that these crises happen at birthdays that end in zero or only at midlife, that's all bunk. Like that's just not how we live anymore. These moments happen whenever they happen, when you least expect them. Okay, the midlife crisis, let it go. Um, so, but what happens is, is that um, we have these opportunities, not just to make them awful periods that we grit. I, I don't like the word resilience because it sort of implies that you bounce back. Resilience actually comes from a spring, but you don't really bounce back. You bounce sideways or forwards, four ways or a different ways altogether, right? And so that's why this book is called Life is in the Transitions and old William James phrase to say, these can be opportunities for the pain and difficulty of going through them 
for growth and renewal. And if we just look at them as periods to suffer or grit or grind or <laughs> grovel your way through, you're missing the opportunity and you're wasting half of your life. Indeed. And I want to finish up here, Bruce. What I really appreciated as the book was gaining momentum, and then it shifted into shape-shifting, so to speak, about reshaping our lives. And each of the chapters was something different. I'm going to hold up the book again. Life is in the transitions, but you talked about when it comes to the life, and this is where we can finish up with what do we want our listeners to do with all of this? Acceptance, marking your life, shedding it, creating it, even sharing it, but in particular, launching it. So before somebody picks up this book and then they read it and then they finish it, what do you want our listeners? What do you want them to think about life and the transitions? What do you want them to feel? And then what do you want them to do with this life? So we were talking earlier, you mentioned um, uh, the TED Talks that I've given. Yeah, they were wonderful. And I was talking about my book, The Secrets of Happy Families before this book. And, and a big part of that is finding a way to talk about difficult experiences within a family. And we still have in my family, a family meeting, uh, which is why I talked about in that TED Talk. I have teenagers now cool. and we still have one once a week on Sunday afternoons. And uh, we had one a few days ago, uh, this past weekend. And my daughters, uh, like many teenagers, uh, anywhere, anytime, but particularly teenagers, in the pandemic, which is when this conversation took place, um, I got tearful about a difficult situation that they faced. And so we were all talking about this. It was a safe space to do it. And time came for me to say something. And I, I talked about life is in the transitions. And I said to them, number one, thank you for sharing. Like you cannot go through an experience like this alone. So for anybody listening to us who's going through a difficult time, who lay in bed last night wondering what the next day would bring or got a cup of coffee this morning and looked out the window, I'm here to say um, you're, you're not alone. And that was the second thing that I said. You're not alone. Like everybody is going through this. I was actually at a conference this past weekend and I heard someone say this wonderful phrase and, and maybe I heard it before, I can't remember, but it landed this time, which is, we shouldn't compare our insides to everyone else's outsides. Mm. Even those people who look like they're having the fantasy linear life, even people who might've had stable careers or having unstable family lives or have stable family lives and might be having doubts about what they believe and or having have stable religious views, but are um, having a struggle with a loved one. Everyone's struggling with someone and you're not alone. And then the, the, the last thing is, there's actually things that you can do about it, right? So, you know, my message to the spirit of your question of what people can do is to understand that you can start where you are, you can get to where you wanna go, but you're gonna to have to go through the woods and you're gonna to have to get around or over or around those wolves, um, but there is help out there. I was where you are. I had a parade of awful things happen to me that I thought was unique. And then I went out and talked to these people. And now I'm frankly grateful for all the parade of awful things that I have not experienced, at least not yet. <laughs> um, I'm a quarter of people in this story had addiction, like the people who lost loved ones, the people. And by the way, all of these events are not necessarily involuntary. Some we choose to disrupt our lives. Some people cheat on their spouses. Some people start new ventures or move or, or whatever it might be. So wherever you are right now, 
I was, or I went out and found people. And what they taught me was not like blanket, oh, you can do it and inspiring. And I believe I can get through it. They actually taught me practical things. Like if you come on this journey with me and you meet these people and you read these stories, you're going to find that there are things you can do tonight, tomorrow, next week, the week after, the month after that. So that whatever you're going through, I can show you there's a way you can get through it more effectively and a little bit more efficiently, uh, and we can do it together. So the last thing that I want to say is we're going to get through this. There is wisdom out there, but the most important thing is to lean in and try. Like maybe the central insight at the end of this is that the life quake may be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary. You have to choose to make that step to walk into the woods. And if you will, you'll meet a wolf or two, but you'll find a way to get through them. I'm Chuck Garcia. You have listened and viewed A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. And my guest today is the wonderful author of this phenomenal book that really spoke to me, to the dad in me, to the son in me. I lost both my parents to cancer. And when I started reading this book and I had tied it to Bruce's TED Talk and all of the rest of his body of work, I want to thank Bruce for coming onto our show and sharing your wonderful story. To our listeners, thank you for always tuning in. You can find me at chuckgarcia.com. I am grateful, Bruce, to you for the wonderful body of work that you have put out into the world, if for nothing else, in the service of other people's well-being. And for that, if nothing else, thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the wonderful work that you do. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Chuck. That was a, a beautiful um, way to end this, and we'll go through this, everybody. Indeed. And to our listeners, thank you very much. See you next. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.